As a long-time foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, it's Josh. Hi, and it's Joe. And you're about to listen to another great episode of the movies that made me. Uh, just want to give you a heads up. Many of the movies. Occasionally, we'll talk about something that's pretty obscure and has never come out on video. Most of the movies we talk about on the show are available at MoviesUnlimited.com, which is the movie collector's website. Yeah, don't waste your time streaming or looking for your favorites on TV. You can own them. Physical media, babies. Yes, go to the TrailersFromHell.com website, click the Movies Unlimited banner on the website, and you can buy your favorites from them, or go right to MoviesUnlimited.com. Shipping is always free on orders over $50. Movies, movies, movies. Hey, this is Josh, and in about a minute, we're going to jump into our conversation with Leonard Malton, who's going to take us on a march through 100 years of cinema. It's absolutely amazing. We had a wonderful time at Malton Fest. Leonard was an incredible guest. Of course, he's an incredible guest. He's Leonard Malton. You're really going to enjoy it. But before we get into that, we have a small favor we'd like to ask you, our wonderful listeners. If you could just go to trailersfromhell.com slash survey and take about 45 seconds of your life to fill in some basic information there, you'd be helping us immeasurably. We're looking to expand our audience and to keep the show going so we can continue to bring you great conversations with amazing guests. We really, 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 really appreciate your support. We couldn't do it without you. You know, actually, it would be really weird to do it without you because it would just be me and Joe sitting in a room talking to people. Um, Although I guess people do that. Anyway, if you could go there, fill it out either now or after you've listened to Leonard Malton, that would be great. You'd be helping us out. And now here it is, Leonard Malton, live from Malton Fest on The Movies That Made Me. This is The Movies That Made Me with your hosts, Josh Olson and Joe Dante. To, to my co-host here, um, young man you may not have heard of, uh, Joseph Dante is also here. And I'm told by the house, come on down, get closer, yeah, get closer. This is like won't a campfire. not be any fun back there. You got to come back down. Yeah, you got to come down. You can go back for the movie, but... We want to hear you snore during the, during the conversation. Um, thank you for coming out. How many people are you familiar with our show and what we do? And uh, some are, okay. Um, thank you very much for coming. Uh, We've got um, a very special guest. I'm not sure how Malton Fest got him, but uh, they pulled every string. You'll never guess. It's amazing. Um, Somehow, uh, the first guest at the first Movies That Made Me episode recorded live at Malton Fest is Leonard Malton. Who'd have thought? A microphone, sit between us so we may grill you. So, um, the gag of our show, as I like to say, is uh, we invite our guests to come on and talk about, um, we have a lot of filmmakers, uh, a lot of other artists, and talk not about their work, but about the movie that in, the movies that have inspired them on their journey. And um, we've wanted to have Leonard on for a very long time, and the tough thing is, uh, I think the show works best when we get people talking about things they haven't discussed before, and the problem with Leonard was not that we couldn't reach out to him, is that I didn't know what the hell uh, we could possibly ask him to talk about. Especially since he's got his own podcast. And he he's says got his own podcast. Anyway. You may have noticed he's got how many books? How many, how many editions? 27,000 editions of a book that lists Leonard's reviews of every movie ever made. So, et cetera. Um, but when this opportunity came up, I, can't, I think I think, please tell me if I'm wrong, I actually think it was my idea. I want to take credit when I have a good idea. 
I came up with something that would be an interesting challenge. The idea was to ask Leonard Maltin to run through a list of his favorite movies that he thinks more people should know, one from every decade of the past hundred years. Is that about right? About right. And did we break your brain? Uh, it's, it's a little jostled, yeah. <laughs> uh, I, I didn't, I started in the 20s, I cheated. So yeah, you, I, I, you told me you were gonna do movies. I didn't, I didn't do one from the teens, though I could. Um, but yeah, well, th thank you for coming. Thank you, thank you for having us. Actually, I think we've, we've come to you. Yeah. I was already here. Delighted yeah. to have you here. How's how's it been going? It's been going great. You know, we, we just finished as we as we were recording this. It's a mid mid afternoon on Sunday, and we just finished screening a wonderful movie called Songcatcher, uh, and uh, about a dozen people came up to me afterwards and said, "How could I not have known of this movie before?" What a beautiful movie. Where's it, been, where's, it, where's it been hiding? And the answer is hiding in plain sight. And it's not their fault that they don't know about it. Right. It, it was under-publicized the moment it came out, though it did win a special jury prize at Sundance for its acting ensemble. So it's mm. not, not as if it didn't get some recognition. But then it was with a small distributor, the name of which escapes me, that was gobbled up by a medium-sized distributor. So it kind of got orphaned and never got a proper release or, or the push that it, it really deserved to get. It is an exquisitely uh, rendered film in every way. And, and, and in an era when female filmmakers are being you know, uh, brought to the forefront as they should, nobody mentions Maggie Greenwell, the writer and director of this movie. She also did a really good Jim Thompson adaptation called The Kill Off, and another film I love called The Ballad of Little Joe. Oh, I know that. I don't know the kill-off. She did a Jim Thompson? Yes, yeah, she did, and did it well. Wow. And it was with an even wackier small distributor. Uh, uh, but I'm told it's on, on YouTube. Uh, like so much yeah. of, of life. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and I also, I just, you, you started off, I believe, you kicked off with a movie I, I love. My, um, that's my, my wife there. And Leonard, I'm going to have to ask you to refrain from your usual obscenity-laced tirades because <laughs> my mother-in-law is here with us as well for Mother's Day. <laughs> But um, you kicked off with Sing Street. Sing Street is just a joyous movie. And yeah. uh, the Weinsteins, who, you know, apart from everything else one can say about them, which is a lot, had uncommonly good taste yeah. in acquiring and sometimes producing movies. And Sing Street was the second film by the Irish filmmaker John Carney, who made a, a, a little sleeper called Once. Oh, once, yep. And the song from Once by Glenn Hansard and Marketa Erglova uh, won the Academy Award and they performed it? it on the Oscar show and got a lot of attention for that. And then they turned it into a stage musical. It was just announced this past week that they're going to turn Sing Street into a stage musical as Perfect. well. That makes so sense. So that may ultimately draw more attention to the film. But we showed it here Friday night at the Egyptian Theater. We had a very good turnout. And when it was over... No one left. They all stayed through the credits because over the credits, they, re, uh, they reprised all of the yeah. great songs, uh, the original songs composed for the film, and people were just dying to hear them again. They were clapping along. Uh, it was like a love-in, yeah. and uh, it, was, it was heartwarming to see. But there again, a film that people don't seem to know. Everyone who has seen it agrees that it's yes. a wonderful movie. Just getting more people to see it. That's the trick. Yeah. Well, hopefully. I mean, that's sort of the whole shtick of our show, I think, is to try to turn people well, on. Well, sure, that's what you, you guys do all yeah. the time. Yeah. yeah, which is why we asked you not to you know, list the greatest movies necessarily mm -hmm. of these eras, mm -hmm. but the ones that you wish more people knew. Yep. And uh, I thought if anybody could come up with a list of 10 movies that I have never heard of. <laughs> <laughs> do, you want to, do you want to start with the 20s What's your uh, and work well, our way up to the modern day? Sure. Sure, why not? Why not? <laughs> uh, the one that came first to mind from the 20s was released by Criterion on a DVD set that is now out of print. So technically, like if your public library has, you know, a, a disc that you can take out or rent, or if you have a friend who has a very thorough Criterion collection, uh, this was in the silent Joseph von Sternberg set. And it's a great, great film called The Last Command. Uh, starring the great Emil Jannings, yes. the great German actor. And in fact, he won the first ever Academy Award for Best Actor, Q. 
like Janet Gaynor, they gave it to him and her for their all their performances of the past year. Oh, I thought it was just for Last Laugh. Nope. Oh, okay. No, no. This Which is also pretty great. Well, yes. Yeah. <laughs> and that's one of that's one of his German films. Yeah. And he came briefly to Hollywood in the late twenties, and made a couple of films here. And The Last Command is just a riveting and very moving film about an a general, an imperial Russian general, like the guy on the last left, very proud man, who who is today in the current day of the film, is now an extra in Hollywood movies. And it shows you behind the scenes of making of a movie. He goes to the Paramount casting office to get his uniform. Uh, I don't want to spoil the rest of the film, but that's, that's how it opens. You first meet him in, in these reduced circumstances, these reduced circumstances to which he has fallen, and then you get the backstory. And it's, it's, it's just a film that gets me every time I see it. Uh, the Last Command. I'm, I'm, you've seen it. I, I actually haven't. It's sort of one of those movies I, you know, I'll get around to. I, I love, I love. Uh, well, you have to be able to find them is the problem. Yeah. yeah. I try to pick ones that actually are available. Available. That, that's sort of technically available if you're lucky. Mm. <laughs> Good to your homework. Yes. Um, that's, but is that the only place you can find it then? Is that box? Or is that yeah, box? I'm afraid so. I'm afraid so. But uh, listen, now that everybody is doing streaming channels and, uh, and there is a perfectly good, excellent copy, quality copy available uh, that Criterion mastered for its set, uh, it should be something that... Well, they should reissue it. takes no, uh, no, no trouble to uh, do a new copy for, uh, for an HD showing or screening. On Maybe the Criterion channel. Maybe the yes. Criterion channel itself, indeed. Yes, only on disc. Yep. But hopefully they'll hear that and rectify it. <laughs> there's, there's a phrase we never thought we'd see. Only on disc. Only on disc, yes. <laughs> <laughs> These wacky times in which we live. Uh, so that's my so next choice. That's the 20s. The 30s. Okay. Frank Capra's Lady for a Day. Ah. Uh, which he remade as Pocketful of Miracles in the early 60s with Betty Davis and Glenn Ford. Lady for a Day is a film that leaves me in tears every time I watch it. It's just a beautiful, openly, unabashedly sentimental film uh, based on a Damon Runyon story about a, uh, a kind of a, a charming racketeer known as Dave the Dude, uh, that being a typical Damon Runyon character name, who uh, has one weakness, and his weakness is that he uh, likes to have a fresh flower uh, every day in his uh, boutonniere, which he purchases from a woman named Apple Annie, uh, played by Mae Robeson, uh, who's, you know, she's a street vendor, street person. And it turns out there's a whole community of these street people, what today we'd call, you know, homeless, homeless people. And... Um, she has been telling her daughter, her daughter's been in Europe getting an education, which Annie has somehow scrimped and saved to give her. Uh, but she's been telling her daughter that she is living high on the hog. And now the daughter's coming to New York. How on earth is she going to present herself to her daughter? She's going to be humiliated. It's going to be just unbearable. And so... She turns to Dave the Dude ultimately for help, and therein lies the tale. Uh, and it, it's uh, Capra, of course, loved character actors, so it's full of great, great character people, uh, Ned Sparks and people like that. And uh, it, it was the year before it happened one night, and I think it was nominated for four Oscars. Robert Riskin did the screenplay, as he did for It Happened One Night and several other Capra classics. And uh, Mae Robeson was nominated for Best Actress. I mean, it, it was a very celebrated film in its time. When they, when they made Pocketful of Miracles, they sort of bought up the, the, the negative and the rights to this original film, which was uh, released by Columbia, which was Capra's home in the 30s. 
and then kind of buried it. Mm. And it was unavailable. You couldn't see it for decades. And then uh, someone in the Capra family realized they were denying us uh, one of his great films. And uh, so it was released on Blu-ray and DVD uh, not too many years ago and should be, uh, should be readily available. Where, I should have asked about the last one. Where, where's the first time? Because obviously that predates you. Um, where, where's the first time you saw it? Uh, in recent years. Oh, really? Okay. When, when, when it was made available. Uh, I think I did see it actually projected on a screen in uh, at probably, the, millimeter, probably at the Regency Theater in New York, one of the uh, last revival theaters in Manhattan. Mm. And, uh, and it just, just knocked me out. And Dave the Dude is played by um, Warren, Warren William, William, the great Warren one Williams. One of the great uh, unsung and a long, for a long time completely forgotten. Yes. I could uh, I could I could do my own episode of this show just on Warren William. Yeah. Oh I, yes. I, do Do you all know Warren William? Are you, I mean, yes. Okay. This, I, this, yeah. He specialized in playing oh, pads, but um, he was such a good kid. But he was really a, a, a really good actor, and he's and he's he's the lead in like so many of these pre code movies. Yep. Uh, and he's just interests. fascinating to watch. Yeah. Uh, really, an interesting actor who is you know sort of subsumed by the fame of the Barrymoreism like that because he was sort of in that mold. Kind of known in some circles as the poor man's John Barrymore. Yeah. Oh, no. Yeah. But really a terrific actor. <laughs> I mean, he, it's, it's, I think the first time I've ever seen in a movie a guy actually literally chased his secretary around a desk. <laughs> was in, I think it's employee's entrance. But he was always that cad and you just can't. Skyscraper You're all souls. skyscraper souls. souls. What a movie. You just, you're rooting for him to demolish the, the good that's people. That's the Warner Brothers movie that MGM made by accident. <laughs> in the pre-code era. Oh, I know. Uh, what's the story? Oh, it's, what I mean the, is, it's not an MGM type movie. It's not an MGM oh, type I mean, movie. Yeah. It's very much a Warner Brothers type movie. Very uh, gritty. Yes. And uh, very racy. And cynical. Yes. Well, it's got yeah. abortions yeah. and adultery. Mm -hmm. and, yeah. And, and, yeah. Yeah. The works. Uh, the works. I, 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 I worship Warren William. I actually, I wrote a... <laughs> I wrote a sort of faux noir a few years back, and I named the villain William Warren, <laughs> thinking it would give away who the bad guy was to everyone who read it, and, and nobody got it. And he, grace, he gracefully <laughs> aged into character parts in the 40s toward the yeah. end of his life, the last decade of his life, and he's very, very good in films like The Private Affairs of Bellamy. Mm -hmm. not, not the best Sam Spade, though. No, 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 no. <laughs> no, and probably not the best Perry Mason, either. But, yeah, no, but still. No. But... but Arguably the best lone wolf. Yes. Yes. So uh, there's that. It's a hometown crowd. <laughs> so that's the thing. Everyone who gets these jokes is in this room tonight. All right. So from the 40s, I, I had a tie. Oh, uh, that's give not you, the, you, so you cheated. The, the famous one or the less famous one? Joe? You should do them both. Okay. Well, the famous one, at least for film buffs, is Preston Sturge's The Miracle of Morgan's Creek, which is just... An uproariously funny movie starring uh, Eddie Bracken and Betty Hutton and William Demarest. The, the, movie, the movie in which he pulled the wool over the censor's eyes yes. to a degree that even today is astonishing. No, no you, you can't quite believe they're getting away with what they're getting away with in that movie. Uh, and, and it's rapid fire. It, it's beyond rapid fire. If it seems rapid fire to us in the 21st century, what must it have felt like to be in an audience in 1944 watching that movie. It must have been like an assault or, or an avalanche coming at you of, of hilarious lines and situations. And, and as usual, as with Capra, uh, Sturgis had uh, uh, his stock company of character actors that he adored and uh, doted on and always gave them their moments right. in the films. And, and the one that isn't as well-known, though it's based on a very well-known property, is... And then there were none. Hmm. Renee Claire's version of the Agatha Christie. Yeah. Uh, you know, and then there were, and then there were none. Yes. Or no, Ten Little Indians. Ten Little Indians. Well, it wasn't originally Indian. Not originally. Yeah, that's how <laughs> But Renee Claire. You can look it up. We're not Renee saying Claire, it. during his uh, years of exile from France during World War II, made some good movies here in Hollywood, and I think this is the best. Uh, and a, a killer cast: Walter Houston, Louis Hayward, Barry Fitzgerald, Judith Anderson. Uh, Misha Hour goes on and on like that, uh, and uh, and it's such a classic setup. Yeah, visually inventive, a visually inventive approach to a a uh, a traditional whodunit, though not not that that not that traditional. No, not that traditional. It's been remade numerous times. Yes, times. Yeah. 
It's a, great, it's a great premise. I mean, I've always loved it. It's, it's ten, 10 people invited to a deserted locale for, for a weekend who slowly find out that they're there essentially to be murdered for sins they have committed. By one of them. By, By one of them. One. And, yes. Uh, it's, it's, yeah, it's great. The, very, very clever. I even like the Oliver Reed one. As, <laughs> as, as bad as it is. You're generous. I am You're generous. A generous yes. soul. <laughs> well, they changed the ending. They gave it a happy ending. Yeah, there's that. <laughs> no one no one consulted Miss Christie, I guess, on uh, that yeah. decision. <laughs> she was left out in the cold, that, that one. So uh, that brings us that's, to yeah. the 50s. We're whipping through this century. My, my decade, in the sense that that's what, I was born in, 19, in December of 1950, but I was too young to see almost anything that came out, except I remember I, I have this indelible recollection of seeing Jerry Lewis's first solo movie, The Delicate Delinquent, mm -hmm. when it was new, when it came out. And I had no idea that he was half of a team with Dean Martin at that moment. And uh, I fell in love with Jerry. And uh, I thought the sun rose and set on Jerry Lewis for many years to come. Uh, and uh, then I the, subsequently had my ups and downs. How had you, how had you managed to miss the, uh, the television appearances? I was too the, young. Really? I was too, yeah, I was like, when they were doing the Colgate Comedy Hour, I was two years old, three years old. Mm. And, uh, and for many years, you couldn't see them at all. And it was only because Jerry saved everything. Uh, he really was a, a pack rat uh, and a compulsive pack rat on, uh, documenting himself. They, he even has 35 millimeter footage of them at the Copacabana, all of which he's now donated to the Library of Congress. So uh, theoretically, we'll get to see more and more of that. Well, the the uh, just just from my memories of television, uh, the movies which were very popular with my age group, mm -hmm. uh, were just a pale reflection of what they were in nightclubs because it was truly amazing that they no one could tell what they were going to do or when they were mm -hmm. going to do it, and it was a hell's a poppin' kind of a of an approach, and um, they were the the toast of the town for years. I mean, that's why they ended up in movies was because they literally uh, were so big in nightclubs that um, people just couldn't get enough of them. And then on live TV. Yeah. And, and I, uh, they've just unearthed and released, uh, actually on uh, Blu-ray and DVD, what, what was called for many years a lost, or to be more accurate, missing Colgate show that was supposed to star Abin Costello. The Colgate Comedy Hour had rotating hosts. Abin Costello were supposed to be on this particular episode, and Lou took ill. So the show opens with Bud Abbott coming out solo. First time he'd ever done that since they teamed up and explaining that Lou wasn't there and that, uh, but they had already uh, recorded, kinescoped two skits. So what they did is they called on Dean and Jerry to come in as guest stars and do the last 10 or 12 minutes of the show. And that is what's new to, to, to viewers. And they are, they've never been funnier. Really? I swear it's, it's some aficionados online say this is the best example of them captured on live TV. And as a kid, when I, or not as a kid, as an adolescent, when I was seeking out their work, you just couldn't see those TV shows. So all I knew of them was their movies, some of which are very funny. Mm -hmm. Uh, but as you say, they pale in comparison yeah. to seeing them, you know, with the spontaneity and the elect, not just spontaneity, electricity that you feel when they're performing live for an audience. Do, do you remember, um, I'm, cause I'm just thinking about my, you know, I had the same, I'm a little younger, uh, but came to Jerry Lewis first and I knew who Dean Martin was and it was years before I realized they'd ever been partners. And that was such a shock to me <laughs> to think about. And then when you finally see them together, they're so good. But did you, do you remember your reaction the first time you found out about that and saw them together? Was it? I can't remember specifically. Uh, I just remember, you know, like I like Jerry and I like Jerry and Dean too. Yeah. What was not to like? Uh, uh, the, the thing that, that the movies didn't do is they didn't allow Dean to be funny. Uh, and the TV or the captures of them in live performance on TV or on kinescope or whatever form you want to refer to, you see how 
Dean was actually quite funny, very spontaneous, uh, was not just a good straight man for Jerry, but right. really had his own uh, thing going on. Uh, now, Jerry, in later years, uh, after Dean passed away, he, Jerry, Jerry started to deify Dean in his recollections. And uh, at one point he said, even when Dean was out there on stage singing a song, a solo, I was in the wings working it with him. And if you've read anything about Dean Martin, I think you have to respond to that by saying, huh? <laughs> I, I don't think Dean necessarily was leaning on Jerry when he was doing his solos. <laughs> Just one man's opinion, mind you. But I, I, I did get to interview Jerry on several occasions, and uh, he was very kind, very gracious to me. And, uh, well, he was, he was gracious, Pretty much to, everybody's gracious to you and sometimes not so gracious to other people. That's, <laughs> yes, that's undeniably true. Actually, the first time I met him, uh, we used to use a conference room at Entertainment Tonight uh, to shoot interviews, and I heard he was coming for a quick interview that day. And uh, I was not conducting the interview, but I, you know, I knew everybody on the staff and all that. And I sort of made my way into the room as they were setting up and just had a little audience with Jerry for, for a couple of minutes. He was very nice. I asked him about working in 3D. I just want to have something interesting or unusual to ask him. And he said how incredibly hot the lights were for both Technicolor and 3D and that the makeup would melt off of them. Well, that's a very vivid memory. And, and I thanked him, and I went back to my desk, and that, I swear to you this is true, that night I got the shakes. I, it's like I had a delayed reaction that I had been with Jerry Lewis. <laughs> it was almost like a... a like, PTSD? Like, uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, but that's how large he loomed in my consciousness, sure. yeah. having grown up you know, with all those movies. And... Uh, and I remember watching his uh, legendary, uh, legendarily terrible live two-hour Saturday night TV show also. And uh, that was when I started to fall out of love with Jerry for a while because he revealed, you know, the, 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 the perhaps less attractive aspects, aspects yeah. of his personality. But uh, uh, he's, you know, he, 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 as I say, he's... he's a giant, he's a giant of comedy. Sure. No, no, no question of that. But uh, in terms of pop culture, he's pretty damn mm -hmm. big too. I used to read his comic book. Oh yes, and DC did those. <laughs> that's right. DC, but DC did the, the Dean Martin and Jerry Lewis comic books. Oh, before and then, that, that's and right. Became Jerry Lewis comic. Books. And they had previously done Bob Hope comic. They books. did Bob yes. Hope comics. Yes. Same artist, Bob Oxner. Yeah. Yep. Who I got to meet. He knows everybody. Well, no, he lived in my town in Jersey. He lived in Teaneck. That's how I met Bob Oxner. <laughs> and by the time I met him, what was he doing? He was drawing the Dobie Gillis comic for DC. Oh, God. I swear that's true. He later actually became a Superman artist for DC and a very well-regarded one. Talented guy. So that's the 50s? No, that was the 40s. It oh, the went 50s. off on a tangent about Jerry. But that Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. So far, I'm batting a 1,000. I have at least... Okay. Familiar with the ones I have not seen. Right. How about Island in the Sky? Never seen Romans, it, but I Island in the yeah, Sky it's, it's with like, John Wayne. Yeah, and a, and a great cast. The more famous movie was the one they made the following year, The High and the Mighty, and uh, which was a huge, huge hit, and which, like Island in the Sky and a, about a half dozen uh, John Wayne movies, was out of circulation yeah. for for many, many years because they were produced by Wayne's production company, which was first called Wayne Fellows. Robert Fellows was his partner. And they, then it was called Batjack. So those films were gone. Couldn't see them. Hondo, 
Island in the Sky, uh, High and the Mighty, McClintock, and, uh, and Bud Bedecker's uh, Seven, Men, uh, Seven from Men From Now, among others, a couple of others, too. It didn't star John Wayne. Uh, Island in the Sky is kind of the sleeper. High and the Mighty was the smash. But this is also based on a novel by Ernest K. Gann, who tended to write about uh, aviation-related stories. And this one is based on a true story, I believe, about a, 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 a plane, a military plane that goes down uh, somewhere in the northern climes and uh, with a small crew and no way to radio for help. And, uh, and it's about the rescue efforts. And while the rescue efforts are taking place, uh, you, you spend time with the, the crew and, and John Wayne, they're... they're commander who's got to try to put on a good face and not show them the despair that he genuinely feels because he he knows that they probably are not going to be saved uh it being a john wayne movie you can guess that maybe that's not the way it turns out but it's it's very solid really good film i was very disappointed when i saw that movie because it turned out to not be a science fiction movie <laughs> You wanted a little island, island in the sky. In the sky. Yeah. I had seen this of island earth. Did. I want I want islands in my sky. Of yes. course you did. Yes. Understand understandably so. Understandably so. Uh, anyway, and Wellman was fond of that movie too. Uh, his son William Very Wellman. underrated director. Yeah. yeah. Yes, he made it so many, so many great films. There's a, there's a huge book out. Oh yes, that Frank Thompson which, did, which is even yeah. even heavier than the Tim Lucas Mario Bava book. Yep. I mean, it is yep. it's a tome, yep. uh, but it's a it's as good a book as I've ever read about any mm -hmm. individual director. So that's a '50s title, fantastic. Uh, that was unavailable for many years and now is available on DVD. I don't think they did a Blu-ray though. I think Not yet. It's only DVD. Uh, when they do the Paramount Channel, perhaps. <laughs> <laughs> it used to be a Paramount channel. Uh, yeah, well, now there is again, actually. Yes, sir. Was yeah. it up against the DuPont network? <laughs> <laughs> oh, there is a Paramount network now. Oh, that's right. Yeah, UPN. Yeah. No, 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 no. no. Gone. They've, they've renamed it, and they, oh, they have the Paramount logo, and it's that uh, Kevin Costner series uh, called The Highwayman is on it. Yes. But the 60s, I, I, I actually got stumped in the 60s. Really? Yeah. Okay. I would, wouldn't think it would be so hard. But all of the great films of the 60s, the best films of the 60s, are really well-known well films. Yeah, because we're getting into the... They've all been celebrated. Right. And even ones that weren't celebrated at the time they came out. And I didn't want to, you know, I wasn't going to say The Graduate or Bonnie and Clyde or, yeah. you know, some, or Easy Rider or, or any of those, The Loved One, even there's a lot of great films. Uh so I picked something a little off the beaten path for the context of this conversation. Walt Disney's Pollyanna. And which gets I love a round of Oh applause. my god, I want to hug you. That movie is so freaking good. Yes I, it is. And no one knows no one knows how good that book. That is, yes, yeah. Preach it, my brother. Go on. That's, <laughs> I believe am I am I correct the last time Disney allowed a writer director combo to make a film well that was david swift yeah who also then did the parent trap again with Haley mills okay a, a year know. later and yes david swift oddly uh, enough had been at the studio in the 30s mm -hmm. as an assistant animator he worked with ward kimball the great ward kimball and uh bear with me now it's a little bit of a tangent yes but that explains too why when david swift made the movie of how to succeed in business without really trying, he turned to the great Disney uh, concept artist, Mary Blair, to set the color design for that movie. And the, that, that's why that movie looks, it's not so just good. Bob Fosse's choreography, yeah. which is great, but the color schemes came from a woman who is, you know, lauded and rightly so for her, in, her inventive use of color. So that all came from so David Smith's so background. I remember as a kid seeing that and and being so drawn to it in a way I would not normally be drawn to a musical. I'm mm -hmm. one about that, but you're right. Yeah, it's, it's, I never thought of that. It's yeah. got such a wonderful vibe. And a rare instance in How to Succeed is a rare instance of them uh, hiring the Broadway actors to reprise their roles. Robert Morse, Michelle Lee, Rudy Valley, Charles Nelson Riley. Right. 
And uh, so that's a fun movie. But the one that I'm talking about is Pollyanna. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Which is just yeah. a, a beautiful film. Yes. Beautiful film. And it was Haley Mills' American debut. Walt Disney got to essentially present her to the American public. Because he'd seen her in Tiger Bay. That's exactly Bay, right. Yeah. With, with, with her father, John Mills. Mm-hmm. And uh, also Walt great. had, an, I guess, almost an unerring eye for talent. Uh, and uh, this was just the latest example. He, and being a child who was addicted to all things Disney, I, of course, watched his weekly television show where he was, uh, uh, you know, unapologetically promoting his, his upcoming movies. So that's where I learned about Pollyanna, saw promotions for Pollyanna, got to know who Haley Mills was, and went to see the film when it arrived in my local theater in New Jersey. And, and it has an a, a outstanding cast. Yeah. Uh, you know, Jane Wyman plays Aunt Polly, uh, and, uh, but it has uh, Carl Malden. Carl Malden. Adolf Manjou. Adolf Manjou. Uh, uh, just lots and lots of experienced, talented, colorful character people populating the town. And, and Haley Mills, who is just irresistible. And the thing about it is that it is not saccharine. Not even, that's the thing. It's Pollyanna, and it's not saccharine or sentimental. Yeah. And it's deeply subversive. <laughs> I mean, you, you don't see another Disney film, especially from that era, taking on the hypocrisy of organized religion. Yeah. You know, in a kid's movie, in right. Pollyanna, no less. Right. Or, or small town, you know, uh, pettiness. Yeah, uh, yeah. Things yeah, like that. So that's that's my '60s. That choice. is a fantastic film, a deeply entertaining. I think there's a. Um, uh, I, I joined the. Um, what is there? Some Disney movie club was the only way yeah. to get it on Blu-ray. Yes, they recently. make it hard sometimes. <laughs> they do. But David Swift did do a commentary and an interview with Haley. Oh, really? For that and the Parent Trap, so uh, you can you can hear him uh, discuss it. Uh, so I love that film. film. You've, I didn't think you could go up in my esteem. <laughs> this, this makes up for your taxi driver review, Leonard. <laughs> oh, that's a that's a big thing. Gosh, she would, if I'd known that, Josh, I would have told you this ten years earlier. No, no, the first—I don't know if you remember that—the first time we met, I just came up to you at a movie theater in Westwood and introduced myself, and I said, "I just—and I meant this—and I am happy to say it any time, and I'll say it here, at Malton Fest." I think it's. I think you're out of your mind, and I respect the hell out of you for the fact that that review still stands. I think <laughs> that is. So many people go back and waffle on these things, and you're like, "This is." I'm not saying you're. That, that was. I had a bad reaction. I, I admire you for that. I'm completely and, sincere. And, and Mr. Scorsese is aware of it, <laughs> and and, uh, and we've discussed it even briefly. And, uh, and there it is. There it is. But I did add one phrase to the review. Oh, no, did you? I did. Uh, although highly influential. Oh, there you go. Because that's a fact. <laughs> that's not an opinion. That, that a is fact. a fact. That is a fact. If you had added, but I might be wrong, I would lose all respect <laughs> for you. I would not be here. But, uh, yes, right, Pollyanna. So that brings us to the 70s. Pollyanna's darker than Taxi Driver, though. <laughs> <laughs> In some ways. Though highly influential. Though highly influential. Yeah. The 70s I've chosen, I, 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 I hope you're a fan of this one, too. I should have checked your, your trailer backlog. Avanti by Billy Wilder. Oh, I like it. We haven't done, no one has done it, Avanti. Oh, uh, yeah, well. For trailers from hell. But uh, it, is a, it is a very good Avanti thing. was not well received when it came out. And it's uh, written almost, and directed by Billy Wilder and IAL Diamond. It was in the period following Kiss Me Stupid. Which, when, started, which started his yes. decline from the critics. Right. As he said in an interview, he, he better make something popular soon to get back on the Godfathers and Pallbearers list in Hollywood. <laughs> and uh, a typical Wilder type remark. But Avanti should have gotten him back in the good graces because it's awfully, awfully good. Uh, it's long. It's unusually long, uh, but it doesn't feel long. And it's a story of a very uptight... American businessman played by Jack Lemmon, Mr. Wilder's favorite actor in, in later years, and, uh, and Juliet Mills, Haley's sister, coincidentally. And, a sense uh, of theme. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, it's not. I just thought of that this, this instant. Uh, and it's, it's about a romance. Uh, you know, a guy who's uh, the last person you'd, you'd expect as a character's 
delineated to have a, a, a fling with a younger woman while, you know, on a, uh, on an errand of, uh, of uh, having to bury a relative. Uh, in very scenic circumstances. Yes, indeed. Yes. Indeed. If you, if you got to go, you got to go <laughs> some, take, choose someplace nice. Anyway, it's, it's an awfully good film. Okay, I, I saw it on TV in England when I was young, and I just remember it was the first time I ever saw boobies on TV. That's uh-huh. I remember. Well, you're a young man. You I was, yes. Young. <laughs> it would make an impression. 1980s, we're getting uh, a little closer to uh, contemporary. Uh, on your perspective, Only a little, I guess. Yeah. Only a little closer. In my uh, day. Well, you know, everybody's doing nostalgia on the 80s. I keep telling them. The 80s are the new 50s. so hot. The 80s are yeah. the new 50s. <laughs> exactly. They are. Uh, House of Games. Oh, David yes. Mamet's film. Yes. Which has just come out from Criterion. So just, it's, oh, a, yeah. it's a very good choice. It's very obscure. House of Games is a film that I have recommended for years. And people have thanked me yeah. afterwards. It's... Uh, it, and again, lacks star value. It starred David Mamet's then wife, Lindsay Krauss, whose name was a, was a pun. Her full name is Lindsay Ann Krauss. And her father, Howard Lindsay, was the co-author of the longest-running play on Broadway, Life with Father, with his partner, uh, uh, Clarence Rouse. So Lindsay and Krauss were the, the writing team, and she's Lindsay Ann Krauss. <laughs> This is stuff that is of no value. There's no value to her. There's no use to this knowledge. This knowledge has no purpose, except that it's cluttering my brain, and maybe by getting it out there, I can get some receptors working for new information. I don't know. <laughs> Carl Reiner said some years ago, he read somewhere that for every new fact you learn, your brain drops an old fact that it knew. So he stopped reading credits. <laughs> I may have to do the same. Uh, so that's the that's 80s choice. House that's of Games, which is about a, con- it's his first about movie. a psychologist who uh, tries to help one of her uh, patients uh, who has uh, got a... Joe Bantanya. Joe Bantanya. Yeah, a bad gambling uh, debt and gets involved with deeply serious con artists who uh, uh, whose... Uh, intricacies of whose uh, workings are beyond my ability to describe. Ricky Jay is one of the Yes, yeah. he is. Yeah. He certainly is. And uh, so that's, that's another one that I've had validated by people who've gone to, watched it and said, that's really good. It's so good. Because yeah. it is. Yeah. The 90s. God. The Dinner Game. Oh, by Francis Weber, the man who made La Cage aux Folles. Yes, yes. Later became oh, we're leaving the continental United States. This is your first foreign picture. Yeah. <laughs> yes, it is. Um, Remade is, well, what was it? What was Dinner, it? For Dinner for Schmucks, which is not, not, not on your list, I'm guessing. Not a good movie. Yeah. I saw Francis Weber uh, at the DGA uh, uh, give a wonderful uh, uh, panel. He was on a panel, and he said several valuable things. One is that his movies are short. One, re- one reason his movies are short is uh, that he doesn't like subplots. He doesn't want to bore the audience. So he chooses a storyline and goes straight ahead and concludes it, and that's the end of the picture. He also said that his script supervisor always tells him it's going to be like 98 minutes long, and it turns out 88 minutes long because he heeps the pace up. So the, those are both good things. They're very good things. And every time, except for the, the Birdcage, which is a wonderfully funny movie, every time they've Americanized one of his surefire French farces, right. they've messed it up. They've had a subplot. They clu- indeed, they have. They clutter it up. Yeah. And, uh, but uh, Dinner for Schmucks, he, he said, the pro- not Dinner, the Dinner Game. Dinner Game, yes. Dinner Game. I- he was trying to find somebody he could make fun of that wouldn't be politically incorrect. You know, and uh, this was in, in 1998 he, he did this. So that's 20 years ago that problem was already rearing its head. Uh, you, know, you know, who can you now make fun of? And he figured out the answer. Idiots. Idiots. <laughs> the dinner game is By the way, you, you, I'm not sure you can use that word anymore. That's, that's very... <laughs> 
We'll hear about this on Twitter when this episode drops. The dinner game is about a, a, a very uh, a sophisticated uh, French uh, book publisher who participates in a weekly dinner where the ritual is to bring an idiot to dinner and essentially make fun of him or her. I think it's mostly males. Yeah. Fun of him uh, without him catching on. And uh, so he, he finds a guy who seems to be the perfect patsy for this. And things go wrong yes. because it's a French farce. Screamingly funny. Just one of the... I don't know that I've ever laughed as hard at a movie as I did at this this film, The Dinner Game. It's it's great. I had a friend who's not, you know, of our tribe, if you will, not mm -hmm. that person, who for a year would tell me about this game and he wasn't or this movie, and then finally one day gave me a just beat up, overviewed VHS of it, mm -hmm. and then for some reason I actually watched it and just went, I'll I'll give it five minutes, and yeah, I mean even on a terrible, chopped up. VHS, that movie was hilarious. It's great. Yeah. It's great. Yeah. I wound up with a tie in the 2000s. Uh oh. So, uh, with your encouragement, I'll do both. I'll try to be brief. The first one is uh, Brothers by the great Danish director Susanna Beer. Oh, yeah. Uh, and they remade it, made That's... an American version that just isn't terribly good. Yeah. Has Shocking, because it usually Jim goes Sharon the other way. directed it. Right. Good cast. Uh, but the original, uh, which uh, I happened to see at uh, Sundance, is just so gripping. Uh, and it, she, she was part of the dogma movement, uh, which was a very, uh, which forces filmmakers to follow Austere. very strict yes. rules. Austere being a mild way of describing what they insisted their filmmakers follow. And they had to fill out reports afterwards of the rules they had broken, too. Was one of them. Well, so she broke away, and this yeah. is kind of a compromise between that kind of austerity and a freer hand. And uh, it's about two brothers, one of whom uh, has to uh, render military service, and uh, the other one is going to stay on the home front and look out for the family. And uh, things do not go... As, as planned, and uh, different facets of their characters are revealed bit by bit. And uh, I, I, again, I came home from Sundance and I started touting this movie to people. It was actually released by Universal here in the States, and uh, I couldn't get anybody to go to see it because the first thing they ask is who's in it. I said, well, the only person that you might know is Connie Nielsen, uh, who, who was in uh, the... the um, Gladiator, very statuesque, beautiful woman, uh, and uh, who still works all the time. Uh, and uh, but she was not yet; it, it is not now a household name. But I couldn't get people to go, and I said, "Well, you're missing out. You are missing out because this is a brilliant movie, and it takes place in large part in very intense close-ups." Mm. And uh, you don't think you're watching actors reading a script playing the script, you, you feel like you're just eavesdropping, you know, look, looking in on uh, people who are uh, at the end of their rope and, and uh, uh, dealing with the, the, the most agonizing emotional stress. Really, really good. The other film that, that people thank me for, because uh, I've recommended it so much, is The Lookout. Scott Frank. The Scott film, Frank thing, yeah. yeah with yeah. Joseph Gordon-Levitt. Yes. And um, Jeff Daniels, and uh, and a very fine cast all the way down the line, and I heard him speak about the film at a screening. This was a film that he had written years earlier. Scott Frank is known best known as an adapter. Yeah. He did Get Shorty. He did uh, I think Out of Sight also. Out of Sight is one of the great scripts and, of all time. Uh, so yeah. he's he's got yeah. great credentials, yep. and uh, he, uh, he this was an original. And he, and he wrote it, and there was one director attached to it for a long time, and they rewrote based on this director's suggestions. As directors tend to and do. And then that director <laughs> left the project. And another director came on, and he did rewrites to satisfy that director. And then that director left, and another director came on. And finally, he, DreamWorks was the studio, 
And finally they said to him, well, why don't you direct it? You, 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 it's five years now. You know the property better than anybody. Why don't you do it? If you can do it for a reasonable price, we'll, we'll let you direct. So he did. And it's a terrific movie. Yeah. Just a terrific movie. I'm assuming. Because he, he went, went back, back to his old his, He went back to the good script. script. Yeah. Yes, 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 of course. He's I've, I've worked at DreamWorks. I know how that yeah. works. <laughs> Uh, and at the time, again, people would say, who's in it? And I said, Joseph Gordon-Levitt. And it's before he really came, you know, came into his own. That kid from Third Rock. He'd only been on one of the most <laughs> yeah. popular TV sitcoms of the era, Third Rock from the Sun. But people didn't you know, recognize it. But you don't it. see him in a kind of gritty film, film noir yeah. sort right, of. Right, right, yeah. right. Yeah. Awfully, awfully good. Great film. Uh, so look out. And uh, that brings us into the... 2010s, which we're going to call them. We are now, right? I think. Yes. And I've got two. No, I've only got one here, uh, which is Tucker and Dale versus Evil (laughs) by Eli, written and directed by Eli Craig. That's a great film. I mean, it is a great (laughs) film. And uh, there's a sad sort of backstory that goes with it. I know this because Eli brought the film to my class at USC and told this story. Um, it was first, I think it was first shown at Sundance and then at South by Southwest. Which is where I saw it, yeah. Yeah. And uh, as a midnight movie, I believe. And uh, it did incredibly well. I mean, and the the buzz, you know, was was just great. What happened was people started downloading it illegally. Hundreds of thousands of illegal downloads. And the studio... uh, I don't want to name the wrong one. I think I don't know which one it is, but I don't want to slander. Miracle Pictures. Yes, if it's a good picture. It's, it's a, a miracle. miracle. Um, uh, it's, uh, he ne- it never really got a proper release, never you know, uh, came to the general public, presented as what it was, which was a, a really darkly hilarious parody of Friday the 13th type movies. Starring Alan Tudyk and Tyler Labine as these two guys, these two complete innocents, kind of dopey, who are yeah, who are mistaken for backwoods, you know, creeps by, by some you know youthful weekenders yes. who've come to uh, you know spend a weekend in a cabin. But the, the the twist of the movie is that terrible things do happen, and grisly, violent things do occur in this comedy and. So it's the blackest of black comedies, uh, but genuinely funny. Yeah, yeah. I actually, I was at Southway that, that year. I remember people lined up to see it. It was getting great word. It played like gangbusters. Yep. And yeah, it just kind of it was one of those things that you come back from a film festival going, well, that one's going to be hit. Yep. And then it just sort of dribbles out. Yes. And P.S., uh, Eli Craig's mother is Sally Field. Oh, well. Just, uh, just throw it out there. There it is. So his grandmother is Margaret Field. That's correct. <laughs> Star of the thing. Star of the thing. Uh, that's a fantastic choice, and 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 kind of out of left field. I did not. Uh, well, see, I like sometimes I like going out to left. Yeah, yeah. I'm I'm actually stunned that I've either seen or heard of a significant number of these. I was waiting for you know, I don't know what you know. See you next Tuesday from 1942. <laughs> but um, uh, wow, that you know, there, there's so many, there's so many good films. That that uh, never find their 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 home. Yeah. Uh, that uh, and and to me, a good movie is nowadays. I don't know if it was always this way, but a, a good movie is a rare bird. And when one comes along, it should be cherished, and nurtured, and shared, and certainly not you know dismissed or or dumped uh, or forgotten. And uh, fortunately, we now have the ability to catch up with these because of all these new you know, in-home right. outlets for seeing films. Uh, none of them really can take the place of seeing them in a theater with an audience, but uh, they at least get the films uh, out there to people. Because it used to be just, you know, what we used to call art films or art houses used to exist mainly in New York, Chicago, Toronto and L.A., and then college towns because there was a long, long period 
for the baby boom years when college was the time that you discovered Fellini and uh, Kurosawa and, uh, you know, and uh, Truffaut. And Russ Meyer. <laughs> um, often, often because you were being taught them. You know, well, you, that, yes, but also the, well, there was a film club those, too. There were film uh, clubs, movie clubs, and also many of those college towns had an art theater uh, in them to service that audience. And uh, now that, that, that era has passed. Yes, uh, as has as have all those filmmakers. <laughs> yeah, and it's it's I mean it's what we talk about on the show all the time, and obviously you think about it all the time. It's it's you know we're in that era now where it's harder and harder to find any kind of direction. Uh, towards those older good films and it's well yes and it's uh which is why what you guys do is is so important uh, with this podcast and with uh, trailers from hell because you are educating people uh not in a pedantic way you're having fun doing it and all of your contributors are having fun doing it uh but that's what it ought to be it ought to be fun discovering a great movie that you've never seen or heard of before is fun yeah, and well, obviously uh, it's what you're doing here this weekend. Yes, that's what we're doing, doing a Malton yeah. Fest this weekend. And, uh, and, and people really enjoy that experience. I know I do. And, uh, and, and I've been enjoying watching these films again sure. here in the Egyptian theater. Oh, well, but right, yeah, with an audience. Because I, I love showing a great film to someone who hasn't seen it. Mm-hmm. Even just one-on-one, I think it's kind of a... Uh, it, it's it's uh, it's probably not healthy. It's kind of a weird vampiric experience because <laughs> the fifty third time you see it by yourself. It's no, like, it's oh. a bonding experience. But yeah. but you get to leech off of the psychic energy as somebody else enjoys it. <laughs> but to sit in an entire theater full of people who are seeing Sing Street for the first time. Oh so, yes, and you know what is going on with them. That's the greatest thing ever. Yes, it was. It was it was genuinely heartwarming yeah. the other night, uh, experiencing it with the audience. Yeah. yeah. And I, as a member of that audience. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, I, I, and by the way, I really hope when you do this next year that um, I would kill, I've never seen it with a crowd, I would kill to see Pollyanna on the big screen with an audience. Oh. I, I hope you will think about that. Because well. it's an amazing film. And if, if you know anything about me, you know I like dark, gritty, nasty. He's the Mandy guy. I am the Mandy guy. Thank you. I had not mentioned Mandy this episode. Pollyanna and oh, Mandy. He wrote it down on the card out. I did. Pollyanna and Mandy would be a great double feature, right? Um, but yeah, please do. He's and, not. A, he wouldn't come to see Mandy. Oh, I think you wrote because I wrote Mandy on the list. But that's a double feature. That is a but, double um, feature. <laughs> that's a, that's it's a, two movies, Joe. That's a kind of double feature. <laughs> it's a first sort of double. It's feature. women's names. It's two. It's two movies. There you go. It's, that's exactly right. No one could no one could argue that point. They are two movies. I wanted noted that for Malton Fest, I was going to be on my best behavior and not bring that up, Joe. It was, uh, it was Joe finally. But um, but Leonard, thank you so much, and and thank you for doing the show. Thank you for inviting us to be part of this. Thank you for doing Malton Fest. Thank you for honestly, um, you know, helping to raise me. Uh, as a child for decades before we even met um <laughs> you're just your work has been invaluable i think well, to uh, movie very lovers flattering. thank you josh thank you for your good work right. and joe thank you for being you and uh, uh joe's done good work too we've known each other since since he was a kid i, I wasn't a kid but he was a kid no close we were close, close. we're only it was only four years different <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and you were contributing to as, as we've discussed to Castle of Frankenstein magazine, yes, the yes. late That's right. lamented Castle of Frankenstein magazine. And uh, uh, you were doing capsule reviews before I started doing capsule reviews. I did do reviews. capsule reviews. I was, I, was, I was basically stealing them from Q magazine. I, used to, <laughs> I, I grew up with Q magazine, which was a magazine in mm-hmm. New York that told you what was playing in all the theaters. And it was a guy named Jesse Zunzer who was the critic, and he used to do these little capsule reviews. And they were sometimes kind of pithy and, and interesting. And I thought that's a nice way of sort of being able to tell people quickly what a movie's about. And so I, I started to do capsule reviews for Castle of Frankenstein. And, and then, of course, you know, Leonard's uh, movie book came out, and which was uh, a, a fixture in people's houses. I mean, yeah. in Hollywood, you couldn't go to anybody's house without <laughs> the Leonard Malton book. My Malton, where's my Malton, they would say. <laughs> and they'd have to, whatever movie was coming on, they'd have to look out up in the Malton. You know, and now, of course, because of the vagaries of, uh, publishing industry and the, uh, 
internet the internet thing the fact that people just push a button now on, on that phone and they get all that information and they get, get it for free yes, the yes. Other, that's the other I, I remember marking my success in life by the fact that i could now get the malton book every year instead of waiting until it fell apart which by the way is usually every two years so it wasn't very well we, we planned it that way very carefully <laughs> uh, do you remember when howard thompson used to do one line Yes. Uh, uh, reviews in the New York Times TV page. And they were very funny. They were very funny. And there's one that I don't agree with the sentiment, but, but it's just too funny not to, to, to share. Uh, the listing said, Abbott and Costello go to Mars. And he wrote, and about time. Was, that was exactly the one I was going to say. <laughs> uh, that sounds like a good one to go out on. Sure, why not? All right. Well, thank you very much, Leonard. Thank you, guys. Thanks, everybody. And thank you guys for coming. Official podcast of trailersfromhell.com, the best damn movie website there is. Our engineer is the composer Don Barrett, who also transmogrified, produced, and created our theme song. This is Josh Olson for the movies that made me. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts.